Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to The Rest is Politics, leading with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alastair Campbell. And today we are very, very lucky to have with us Arantxa gonzalez Laya, who was Spain's foreign minister, but has also done an extraordinary variety of other jobs. She was very senior at the World Trade Organization. She was the senior official at the European Commission. And she is now the head of Sciences Po, which is the most famous, probably, school of international affairs anywhere in the world, based in Paris. And she's also, I think, I mean, I, we met first in a monastery in Segovia, a monastery associated with a sort of rather sinister man called Torquemada. This was his great home monastery. But she's also the only person I know who seems to speak more languages than Alistair. So welcome very much to the show, Arantxa. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you. And why were you two in a monastery? What were you doing in this monastery together? Well, we were debating transatlantic relations. You know, the world is a bit complex today, and uh, there is a bit of soul-searching on both sides of the Atlantic, on the US and on Europe, about how we can work together, how we can advance our interests and values together. Because let's say that in the last period, we've tried, but we've had a bit of hiccups. Uh, Remember, there was Trump on the US, There was a lot of preoccupation on the European side about internal domestic politics. We need to get this relationship right because there are clouds gathering in the horizon. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Who were your parents? Would they expect you to have become the foreign minister of Spain? What's the story that brought you here? Certainly not. I mean, I guess my story is the story of so many Spaniards uh, that had incredible opportunities when we go back to democracy and the country. And... uh, when we had access to an incredible education system and uh, when uh, we became members of the European Union, this process of modernizing Spain post-Franco meant many new opportunities for people like me. My parents were average uh, Spanish citizens. My father was uh, a teacher. I was born in in San Sebastián, but my father was a teacher in a very rural 
area in a little village in the middle of the Basque country. And my story is that of the opportunities that Spain gave to citizens that were uh, educated and uh, adolescent in the post-Franco times. Where do you think Spain fits in the, if you like, the European Power League? How powerful do you think Spain is? When I think uh, Spain suffers from uh, a complex of inferiority, I think Spain has a lot to say and a lot to bring to the European Union. It's a country where a lot of the values of the European Union are very present. People feel there is a lot of solidarity between people. We welcome uh, migrants. We are biggest donor of organs in the world. We care about our environment. We are determined to fight against climate change. And yet sometimes I have the impression that Spain punches below its weight. Mm. And I think this, this is this inferiority complex of having arrived at the European Union after the others, not having shared the dreams of the founders of the European Union because we did not participate in the Second World War. So we were not part of that reconciliation, although we had massive reconciliation to do in the country post our civil war. So always a bit behind, but I've seen it this with my own eyes. When Spain is there and Spain deploys all its force on all its contribution, the others are ready for a more active uh, Spain. And Arantxa, just to take us back again one, one second to earlier life, you presumably have very faint childhood memories of Franco. Tell us a little bit about what that journey was like, what the politics was like through the lens of your own relatives and family. How did all this form you? Because eventually you joined a socialist government, is that right? That's right. That's right. I guess I was, uh, I was born at the tail end of a dictatorship and um, dictatorship was not a nice place to be. <laughs> we had a bit of a gray country at that time. Remember also that I was born in the Basque country that had decided to take terrorism as a form of resistance to dictatorship. It then degenerated as every terrorist movement does. It degenerated into uh, coercion, uh, corruption and uh, violence uh, without much reason. But at that time, let's say, beginning of the 70s, this was a form of resistance to dictatorship. What I can tell you of my childhood is that I didn't know what I wanted to become, but I was very clear that for me, Europe was this big light that guided me, that I thought should guide my country. I was avid reader of uh, Europe and European affairs since I was a child, because I thought Europe represented this freedom, this democracy, this community we needed to be part of, uh, which is why I decided to uh, very early on that I wanted to be part of that adventure. You mentioned growing up in, in the Basque region, and we do hear a lot about Basque separatism and about Catalonia. Just give us a set your sense of what the, the basic issues are that drive the separatists. Beyond the obvious, what is it that they want and what makes them feel that they're not Spanish in the way that you feel you're Spanish? Well, I think what, what we have is a country that is very diverse, where our feelings of belonging to Spain are diverse depending on the part of uh, Spain you're at. The European Union is diversity, right? So I've always felt that this diversity was something that you could manage to be Spanish and, and yet feel very strongly about your specific region, that you could speak your regional language, the Basque language in my case, the literature, the gastronomy, the traditions that you could cry with uh, uh, the music of that region and still feel Spanish. And I think this is perfectly possible because this is what the European Union is also. 
it's unity in this diversity. Now, this diversity has different manifestations. We've got in Spain citizens, a small part, but we need to be respectful of their beliefs that don't want to be part of Spain. They want to break away. A majority in those regions that want to have uh, degrees of autonomy for their regions. They want to have a say in how they organize their affairs, including in the Basque country fiscal autonomy. And then uh, there is uh, another big chunk of citizens in those regions that feel very strongly that that region has to be part of uh, Spain. So in a way, we have to learn to uh, marriage the specificities with this belonging to Spain firmly anchored in the European Union. And that recipe is not always easy because sometimes, and this is what we've experienced in the recent past, uh, those that want to break away decide to take a steps that are dramatic, including uh, organizing a referendum of independence, although this is not unilaterally, although this is not accepted in our constitution. I think what we have is a constitution that gives us the possibility to express their diversity while being part of Spain. And we always have to be trying to accept these differences. Uh, not everyone accepts this. We've also seen, in a way, the rebirth of Spanish nationalism. And this is our constant quest for diversity within unity. And Arantxa, just help us on that one, because both Alistair and I are of Scottish heritage, but you know, obviously live in the United Kingdom. And I was very upset, actually, when Scottish referendum happened, that so many people in England seem not to care. The Prime Minister just said, oh, I have a referendum, no problem, if you get 50 plus one percent of the vote, you can have independence. The whole thing was done in a very sort of um, laid back way. Why do you think in Spain there's a more passionate commitment to trying to hold the country together than maybe felt to be the case with David Cameron's United Kingdom? Well, first, uh, because we've gone through a lot of trouble in our history. The history of Spain is not an easy history and where we've always had to juggle with fitting all different parts of the country together. Sometimes it was the fight between uh, the liberals and the conservatives. Sometimes it was between Republicans and uh, Francoists sometimes. So these kaleidoscopic differences that make the country have been a constant in our history. And I think what we learn after very difficult years of dictatorship uh, that lasted very long, almost 40 years, we gave ourselves a constitution and it was all of us giving all of us a constitution, a constitution that represents this desire to overcome the past and build a more modern Spain where the regions have their place, where they've got areas which they manage, where they lead on, where the self-government is a very, let's say, expansive, where it's not independence. It's not a confederation like in Switzerland. It's one country with autonomies uh, in the form of regions. Mm. And I guess what we have to preserve above all is the ability to change the constitution that we have, but to do this together. Rory mentioned there David Cameron's referendum in Scotland. There was, as you may know, <laughs> another referendum that David Cameron called on June the 23rd, 2016. I've noticed that in every single one of your answers, you've mentioned the European Union, which clearly kind of matters to you an awful lot. I'd just be interested in what, what your thinking is seven years on about what the UK did in deciding to leave the European Union and what you think people in Spain think of that and whether there's any desire for Spaniards to leave the European Union. Well, I think for all of us in Spain, it was a very sad day. We've got a very special relationship with the UK. The UK uh, has 
a big presence in terms of citizens in our country, and we have a big presence of Spaniards in the UK. And I myself, an example of that, I've had very close association with the UK, going to the UK to learn English since I was a very small kid. And I feel very close uh, to the country. And this is why when the British citizens, with a very thin result, decided to leave the European Union, I was very, very sad. Not only because uh, I thought this was bad uh, for the European Union, you know, it's the first time in our history that where we see a member leave the family, but also because I thought this was not a good decision for the UK. This was not a good decision for the UK citizens. Now, I'm very respectful of the decisions that the citizens have made. But let's say that seven years later, I feel that the UK citizens are looking back at what some voted that day with a bit of regret. And Arantxa, one of the things that Alistair and I have noticed is that we feel that the UK's significance, their presence in international affairs is diminishing. You know, I've been very sad, for example, at the big cuts to the international aid budget. I feel that when people are discussing Africa, the UK seems less relevant. It seemed less relevant at Unger. Do you feel that by leaving the European Union, Britain, paradoxically, instead of what the Brexiteers hoped that its international influence would increase, in fact, its international influence has decreased? Of course, because we're living in a, in a world of giants where in order to be able to shape internationally, to have an influence, uh, to have a say on international trade or to be active uh, in uh, mediating in conflict, you've got to have a size now the UK has an incredible history and lots of relationships with many countries around the world. But in today's world, the UK has become a small country from all points of view. And this is not me belittling the UK. It's just a factual uh, description of the situation. The UK had an enormous ability to influence internationally through the European Union. I mean, I've lived in the world of international trade for many years, as you know, and I can tell you that the trade policy of the European Union had a lot to do with the British shaping it. Now, can we say that Great Britain has more influence in shaping international trade today that it's on its own than as part of the European Union? I think we have to be lucid. It's not the case. Mm -hmm. It's basically that the attractiveness of a market that is 700 million people is not the same as a very small market that the UK represents in the bigger scheme of things. It's paradoxical, but this is what happens with populists. They give you very simple recipes of taking control, when in reality they are taking control, but the country is not. The country is losing it. Mm. You mentioned um, international trade there, and of course, in a sense, your professional life was set by the work that you did, particularly with Pascal Lamy as his chief of staff at the, at the WTO. And you wrote a very interesting piece in the Financial Times uh, about 18 months ago now. And I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. The emerging narrative from the war in Ukraine is that the surge in geopolitical risk will compound existing dissatisfaction with the global trade system and lead to fragmentation. Security will trump efficiency. Integration with like-minded partners will replace multilateralism. This narrative is neither right nor desirable. There is no doubt that the ongoing conflict is reinforcing anti-trade prejudice, but is this a global trend? The short answer is no. Do you still believe that? Do you still feel that that anti-trade prejudice, as you call it, 
is being successfully resisted and that globalization, as we understand it, still has a future? You know, I've always thought that trade is an incredible tool. It has helped many countries around the world transform from agrarian economies uh, to industrial and now services economies. It has uh, helped in improving competitiveness, innovation and growth. But it is also fair to say that trade and globalization has created incredible competition forces where they've been losers and winners. And in some parts of the world, uh, we've taken care of the losers. In some other parts of the world, we have not. And in the parts of the world where we have not taken care of the losers, there is a big resentment against trade. There is a big resentment about globalization. So I think what history tells us is that if we want to keep markets open, if we want to keep international trade, generating growth, competitiveness, and innovation, we have to do more than simply trade policies. We have to look at social safety nets. We have to look at education, uh, retraining. We've got to look at investments in healthcare. We've got to look at research and development. We've got to look at infrastructures, housing, all of this has to be part of a serious economic policy of open markets. I worry in particular about the US because I think the US is an incredibly competitive economy. It's incredibly innovative. I mean, technologically, digitally, you name it. And yet the capacity of the US to remain a, a market open to its own companies is a risk by the lack of investments in social safety nets, by the absence of a very serious domestic consensus between the two big parties, Republicans and Democrats, that you have to invest in those social safety nets too. Because if not, what we will see is a big backlash against open markets, a desire to retreat behind domestic borders, isolationist pulsions that we already uh, see appearing. So I think it is important uh, to also make the case for open markets, but a strong social safety nets. The two need to be clearly on the table, especially now that we've got this new disruptor called technology, called artificial intelligence, that's going to be an even bigger a game changer, which we have to learn also to respond to. We cannot just simply tell our citizens, you know, technology is great, get on with it. No, we need a serious discussion about social safety nets, a new social contract. Arantxa, your life sometimes feels like a kind of parable of the world's period of optimism and then the period of pessimism. I mean, you, you seem in many ways a kind of symbol of what was extraordinary about the 80s and 90s, the emergence from dictatorship to democracy in Spain, joining the European Union. You were very much there. You were in the commission as the trade spokesman and the age of the great liberal optimism of the early 2000s. So you really saw the kind of positive, optimistic story of open trade, liberal global order, Western values, the spread of democracy around the world. And then by the time you became foreign minister, you were into a much more difficult age. You became foreign minister into the age of populism. Poland had gone, India had been taken over by a populist, Britain had had a Brexit referendum, Bolsonaro was in in Brazil, Donald Trump was in in the United States. What happened in your lifetime? How is this possible that the world went from the passionate optimism of the late 80s, the 90s, early 2000s, your early working life, into this 
much grimmer world that you inherited as a foreign minister. He's, he's not blaming you, by the way, Arantxa. He's, he's, he's just asking you to observe. <laughs> No, no, and I've been observing this. First, there has been a massive redistribution of power in the world. And this redistribution of power in the world, I mean, when I joined the labor market at the beginning of the 90s, China represented 2% of the world economy. Today, it represents 20% of the world economy. By the way, a world economy that has massively increased. I'm saying this about China, but I could say the same about Indonesia, about India, about Turkey about Mexico, about South Africa, the, the distribution of power in the world has changed. And we've not been too successful in reorganizing uh, the institutions, the mechanisms and the rules that we've given ourselves uh, to govern this international sphere, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank, whether it's the World Trade Organization, whether it's the United Nations that still has a Security Council that looks very much like 20th century, in a 21st century where the balance of power has changed. But I think we also have to acknowledge that there's been a big questioning of uh, liberal democracies within liberal democracies. We've seen also the attempts to hollow out liberal democracies uh, from within, maybe because of the huge changes that our countries have also gone through and are going through, uh, whether it's uh, the changes related to technology, which has changed uh, labor markets fundamentally, whether it's climate change that is obliging all of us to reform the manner in which our economies work and the manner in which we consume. These are all big transformations. And then also probably because in many places, illiberal forces within our democracies have used citizen uh, fatigue with the slow pace of response that democracies sometimes have had uh, to uh, the ordinary challenges of citizens to basically offer magic recipes in the form of direct relationships between leaders and people without institutions, without constitutions, without judges, without media, which we know is the favorite of illiberal forces. So we've got to deal with these two things. The international reorganization, redistribution of power, and the internal forces push back against the pushback on populists. Arantxa, in the context of the European Union, if you think so, the UK has left, and at this stage, hard to see how it gets back. France could easily elect Marine Le Pen. Italy now has Maloney. Hungary has Orban. Poland has moved, Slovakia has moved. You now have these very right-wing parties that are part of coalitions in Scandinavia, which we always used to think were kind of beacons of liberal democracy. You have the AFD now in Germany doing way better than they've ever done before. Do you worry that these forces are so powerful that they might rip apart the entire European Union? I worry, but more than worrying, I'm trying to present a different uh, alternative, uh, which is what we have to do. At the end of the day, in Europe, citizens decide. And we will have a very interesting moment next year with European elections. And this is when citizens will tell us. And we have to be ready for that battle. Last time, in 2019, when we had the last European elections, we had an increase in participation. And this participation was driven by young people in Europe, in the EU. And these young people were basically fighting on one topic that they thought was existential to them. 
climate change. And they told the politicians, this is what we want Europe to do. But the populists have embraced that issue as their latest cause for populism. They're, they're now, and we, we're seeing the impact even here in the UK recently with Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, pushing back on the environmental agenda. And, and the reason why, for example, the AFD have just done very well in these elections in Bavaria and Hesse, they say, is because they're pushing back, including with young people who say they can't afford the transition. Well, let's wait and see what the young people tell us in the next European elections. I mean, I think for sure the conservatives in Europe uh, are trying to hijack the green agenda under the excuse that it's too complex, uh, that it's too costly. Well, okay, then let's have a debate about how do we ensure greater fairness. Let's look at what instruments we can deploy to do that. But let's not stop the fight against climate change because... I'm sorry to say, this is an existential fight. And it's not me saying it. Uh, we just need to look around us. It's very clear that this is our collective responsibility. Now, let's discuss with the young generation. I want uh, to see what happens in the next European elections. And in the meantime, I think collectively, we have to have a serious conversation about how we ensure faster pace with more equity just a few days ago here in Sianspo, we had an incredible discussion with uh, our students that are also debating and discussing among, among themselves how to do that. But the expectation is not that we do less, uh, Alistair. The expectation is that we do more. Let's wait and see if the electorate in the British election are ready to grow back on the fight against climate change when every citizen in the UK is feeling already the impact of climate change. I want to see that. Okay. I think let's take a short break. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, that's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Arantxa, one of the things you haven't talked about is immigration. And it's possible to argue that really the reason why right-wing populists have got so much momentum is because of a perception from many uh, voters in Europe that the 
old ruling establishment did not address their immigration concerns properly. And that unless the moderate politicians come up with a solution to immigration, then the Orban vision of the world, this vision of a world dominated by authoritarian populists, is going to become ever stronger. Totally agree. And I think, uh, again, it's a bit like uh, with climate change. We've got to fight this battle with arguments. Europe, and the UK is in Europe from this point of view, is demographically in decline. This means that we will need migration in our societies. And this is already a reality. The alternative, therefore, is not between migration yes or migration no, but rather how do we do the migration? How do we manage it? Do we let the mafias control migratory flows into our territories or do we organize this migration working with countries of origin, devising mechanisms to train uh, the people that we would need uh, in our own Uh, labor markets in the countries of origin? Will we uh, organize uh, social security, proper contracts, proper salaries? So what we need to do is manage the migration. And frankly, this can be done. When when I was uh, foreign minister working with uh, my colleague, the minister for migration, we started doing that. We started doing agreements with countries. We did this with Senegal. We did this with a couple of Central American countries. Arantxa, sorry, just to interrupt for a second. So one of the ideas we've been discussing is whether the UK, for example, could say, we will accept a certain percentage of our population in asylum every year. So let's say 0.05, maybe the UK takes 40,000 people a year, but it returns the people who cross on boats from France because France is a safe country. There's no reason for us to be taking people from France. Instead, we should be negotiating with the European Union to take people who are in genuine need and sharing the burden fairly. Maybe every country should try to agree a percentage of the population they take. What do you make of this? So we were talking about migrants, but there is a category of migrants called refugees, asylum seekers, that have internationally recognized protection. These are the people that are fleeing wars, conflict, persecution, political, sexual, etc. Very soon, we will have in that category too, those that are fleeing the impact of climate change because we, we are seeing countries will disappear as a result of uh, climate change. The rise in the level of the seas will lead to countries disappearing. And we will have to deal with as climate migrants or climate refugees. But refugees and asylum seekers have a special international protection and all our countries have agreed to respect international rules on asylum seekers and refugees. So let's not put all of this into the same bag. We've got one part where we've committed to taking them because it's a, our humane responsibility. And then there is others. Now, it is true that when they get to the border, sometimes we don't know in which category they are. And it's fair to say that many asylum seekers coming to our borders ask for asylum. In reality, they don't fall into that category. But I think we have to make a very serious distinction. And in that distinction, obviously, internationally, we have to look at how do we share the responsibility of welcoming these citizens, again, that are fleeing conflict. And frankly, with the multiplication of conflicts around us, this task is going to be a more complicated task, which is why we would do well also in working towards managing conflicts as opposed to fueling them if we were responsible. So you spent 
six years of your life as an assistant secretary general at the United Nations. And you mentioned earlier that the United Nations at the moment feels very last century, hasn't really caught up with a lot of the geopolitical, geostrategic changes that have, that have happened. So both based on your experience at the UN and your experience now looking at it from the outside, as it were, is it fit for purpose and what possibly can replace it when we have these massive international challenges? So I think there are different parts of the UN. Well, first, that the UN is the members that make the UN sit it around the table making decisions. They are the shareholders of the organization. And frankly, because they are at the moment, they are not in a very healthy shape. They are not uh, at the moment in a very cooperative mood. The situation of the UN is not good. Now, the UN is also the thousands of people that work in the UN. The UN is also the humanitarian agencies that today are in the front line of all the conflicts that are happening in the world, including in Ukraine, including in Gaza, including in Myanmar, including in Sudan. These are the men and women that fight for all of us every day for giving shelter, giving food, managing humanitarian situations. But it does it despite the reality of the politics. Exactly. And this has obviously limits. And we are seeing some of these limits on the ground. Now, there is the other UN, the political UN, the one that has a security council that is responsible for managing the solution, for providing solution to today's conflict. This is highly dysfunctional today. This is where we need a reform of the political structures and the political compact in the uh, UN. The Secretary General has launched this uh, Summit of the Future for next year, where he is advocating uh, for addressing some of these uh, challenges. I don't think we can uh, replace the UN with something else. I think the hard reality is that we have to work to change what the UN is today in a manner that is more inclusive, but also uh, a bit more uh, efficient. Would you change the permanent five structure? I mean, I think we need to add others into that mix. Clearly, these uh, five permanent members don't represent uh, the world of today. Your life is spent at a lot of these very grand meetings. You know, you were senior at the EU, you were senior at the UN. I imagine you go to the Munich Security Forum, the World Economic Forum. When you're sitting at all these things, what, what is your sense of this international conversation, sitting there listening to all these presumably predominantly men chit-chatting about the state of the world? Is it a very depressing experience to spend years doing this? Well, uh, first, I would tell you that um, I've also had another uh, part of my life, uh, not just in senior positions in the UN, but also working on the ground, uh, heading a, uh, the International Trade Center, which is a development agency of the UN and the World Trade Organization, working to help informal entrepreneurs, small and medium enterprises, women in business participate in international trade. And I've done this in Liberia, and I've seen this in Afghanistan, and we've done this in Palestine, and in so many other parts of the world. So let's say that I've also seen their realities on the ground. And, you know, what I would tell you is that what I have learned, and this is the school of Jacques Delors, the incredible president of the European Commission, he always said, never choose between being an optimist or a pessimist, choose to be an activist. And mm. this is what I try to apply in my life, be an activist. Of course, uh, if I sit in some of these conversations, I would be totally depressed, but I always have to think, what can we change for small that this something is? Where can we have an influence? Where is there a space for small little progress, a dialogue, a cooperation, which is why today in this very 
fractured world in this very polarized environment, I keep on insisting that we've got to keep bridges open for dialogue and cooperation. And Arantxa, tell us a little bit about feminism. Tell us about whether being a woman matters in these contexts and what you think your perspective as a woman brings when you're listening to these conversations or indeed when you were foreign minister of Spain? No, I would tell you that when I was young and when I entered the labor market, I was not a feminist because I thought that you would get there for your merits uh, (laughs) and a bit of luck. I mean, luck is always very, very helpful. But when I got into the labor market and I started working uh, first as a lawyer and then in the European Commission, I realized that There were systems where power was not distributed evenly, where there were discriminations overt and sometimes more subtle that didn't make it easy uh, for women to advance. So I guess that I've grown to become a, a feminist. And if I may, the two things that I've learned in this journey, one, that the advancement of women and the empowerment of women will not happen automatically, that we will have to push. And especially now when there is a big pushback because feminism has also been captured into ideological fights uh, on the right and on the left. We have to push to make this an issue of societies, not an ideological issue. It's fundamentally in our countries, which are democracies, is a democratic issue. But the second thing I've learned also is that this is not a fight of women working with women to advance the cause of women. This is about men and women working together. And it's not going to happen if we are not convinced that this is not a zero-sum game, that this is positive for men and positive for women. The task ahead of us is huge, which is why Alistair and Rory, I hope, uh, we can agree uh, that uh, we have to work together, men and women to advance more equal societies. You've now got this senior role at Sciences Po, which is one of, as Rory said earlier, one of the most important kind of educational political institutions in the world. And I I spoke there, I think this was before you took over, but I spoke there a while back. And there's some very, very clever people there, but I, I sort of sense that even in that younger generation, there's a cynicism about the capacity of politics to make proper change. And I wish I'd spoken to you before I wrote my last book, which is about being an activist, (laughs) because I thought what you said there is, you know, not a pessimist or optimist, but activist. I think that is so important. But how do we fire up a generation that has grown up in this populist world, actually knows no other world and knows no other world than social media and disinformation and all the other stuff that we know about? I really like this uh, this question, Alistair, because this is a question that I got from one of my students last year at the beginning of the academic year. A student asked me, if the world is broken beyond repair, why should I care? So we have to be very careful with the young generation, not to give them the impression that they are powerless, not to give them the impression that they are disempowered, because they are not. So... The response was, look at all these many cases where people, people like you, have had an impact. When people took to the streets in Fridays for Future, they made climate change a political issue on the agenda. When people went out on the streets in the Me Too movement, they created an incredible cascading effect that started to break this very anti-women attitudes in many parts of our society. So I guess what 
we need to be clear with our young generation. This is what I tell them here in Sian's Pool, but this is what I tell every young person that I meet. And I meet many of them because I'm passionate about talking to them and uh, making them activists and uh, ensuring they become activists because they are the legitimacy basis for our democracies in the future. I tell them that they are leaders, that they are leaders, leader with little L, but with a capacity to shape realities around them, that they've got to find the spaces where they can exercise this leadership, but that they are not powerless. The last thing we want is to tell our young population that whatever they will do, it wouldn't matter. This is creating an army of nihilists. Oh, I should, I should, I definitely should have had you in the book. Good God's sake, Rory, why didn't you introduce it before <laughs> I finished it? Honestly, this is so on message, it's ridiculous. Presumably, there are moments, if you look, for example, at the current conflict in Gaza and the standoff between Hamas and uh, the Israeli military. I mean, is it really possible for you to feel hope that this situation can be resolved, that we're going to end up in a better situation in Israel-Palestine after everything that's happened since 1967? What do you do about these extreme situations? How do you give hope about them? We've got to talk about people and we've got to talk about their dignity. When I got up this morning and I was listening to the radio, I heard this woman from Palestine, this lady that was uh, talking to the presenter of the program from Gaza. And she said, and I quote, we are not just news, we are people. In Gaza is about people. In the kibbutz in Israel, where the terrorists from Hamas murdered, is people. In Ukraine is people. In Myanmar is people. So we've got to go back to people and their dignity and their rights, and our collective obligation to defend and stand up for them, above distinctions of race, religion, political affiliation, and the rest, we are people. So we've got to go back to that. Uh, and I know it's tough, and I know that in the case of Israel and Palestine, this conversation about people is rendered more difficult by radicals, and we also have to deal with that. But I think the majority of us care about people. Oh, well, as we get to a close, I wonder if I can add, this is, this is quite a big question. When you said earlier that you think Spain has a sense of an inferiority complex, do you think Latin America has the same? And could you just reflect for us on Spain's relationship with Latin America, how important that is, how it works, and also where it's heading? No, Spain has an incredible uh, relationship with Latin America because history uh, made us together. And uh, if I look at the number of Latin Americans living in Spain, if I look at the number of Spaniards living in Latin America, if I look at the fact that we speak the same language, and in reality, we respond to the same codes, the relationship is incredibly rich. It's true that Spain has been very preoccupied uh, with sorting out its own difficulties, the difficulties of a post-2008 crisis that left huge economic scars in the country, the difficulties of the unilateral referendum for independence that Sam pushed in Catalonia, the difficulties of coming together. So we've been a bit preoccupied with ourselves. It's also fair to say that in Latin America, there's been a number of uh, political forces that has led many of 
the countries to be more inward-looking, more introvert. I think we have an opportunity now. We've got in Brazil a president that cares about Latin America and cares about Latin America having a say in international affairs. We've got political forces in Spain at the moment that understand uh, the importance of working together with Latin America so that together with Spain and Portugal, bringing the EU uh, and Latin America closer together can help deploy our forces for what people care about. Is there a Latin American leader that we perhaps don't know that much about? We know about Lula, we know about some of the others, but is there a Latin American leader about whom we don't necessarily see as a as a huge figure in Europe that you think Rory and I should maybe be getting onto the podcast to talk about Latin America? Are there new f- political forces there that are interesting? I mean, there are many different political forces in Latin America. They all have uh, different political uh, also perspectives. Uh, I listen a lot to uh, President Boric in Chile, who's heading a, a coalition uh, that he has to keep together to advance the country. I listen to Gustavo Petro in Colombia, who is also heading a coalition government uh, more to the left of Boric uh, that has to provide for solutions to its citizens. I listened to the new president of Guatemala, human rights activist that is having a lot of trouble getting some dark forces in the country to accept that he will be the new president of the country. We have to listen to all of them because they make for what Latin America is, which is also a plural and diverse uh, political space. And Arantxa, finally, just to bring you back to a more internal, personal note. You've been very optimistic and you've been talking about hope and activism, but can you reflect a little bit on some of the personal challenges when you became the foreign minister of Spain, when you went from being a lawyer and a senior civil servant to really being in the heart of politics? Tell us two or three things maybe that listeners don't really understand about the reality of being a politician. What makes it tough? Why is it that so many people don't want to go into politics or leaving politics? What, what, what is the negative side as well as the positive? Yeah, domestic politics is tough because I was already doing politics, but I was doing it uh, internationally where the, let's say, distance between the electorate and the politician is much wider. At home, you have a very close, intimate relationship with your citizens, uh, with uh, those that you serve in your capacity. And that has very good sides, but it also has very negative sides in terms of intrusion, including uh, into your your own uh, private life. You stop having a private life. But I would say, I mean, for me, public service has been a constant in my life. I've done it at the European level. I've done it at the international level. And doing it at the national level was a huge privilege. But it's not easy. Imagine that one month and a half after I had taken oath, I was confronted with COVID. And one of the most difficult things that politicians uh, have to do is having to choose between terrible alternatives. Very often you are confronted with having to choose between a very, very bad and a very, 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 very bad. Not between a good and a bad, but choosing between very difficult, tough decisions. This is what we had to do when we accepted to lock down the country and limit what's most sacred uh, in our citizens, which is their freedom to move. I mean, these were big decisions. So I guess in this political world uh, of having to sometimes uh, choose between very, very difficult choices, uh, you have to be able to explain to your citizens why you do that. And the second thing, therefore, that I've learned in domestic politics is that you have to keep very close 
to your citizens, that you've got to tell them that our citizens are intelligent, they understand. And when difficult times come, if you make the right pitch and if you make the right explanations and if you go and be sincere with them, at the end, it's going to be easier to manage uh, the tough times. But uh, there's been lots of sleepless nights, let's say. Well, Arantxa, I'll be honest, I could talk to you. I could talk to you all day. So thank you for your story. Thank you for your frankness. And thank you for some really fascinating observations. Well, thanks to you. And thank you to the listeners. Thank you very much. Speak soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, Alistair, what did you make of that? Well, Rory, as you know, when you came back from your monastery and said, honestly, this woman, she's so interesting. And I'm saying, for God's sake, we're trying to get, you know, Obama and (laughs) would we do Trump? I don't know. Uh, But, you know, all these sort of huge names and you've got some former Spanish foreign minister. But I thought she was great. I thought she was absolutely great. I could have talked to her all day. Yeah, because she's had a lot of different experiences, hasn't she? She's been the politician. She's been the the bureaucrat, she's been the person on the ground, she's now the educator. And I guess she was saying the sorts of things that we kind of talk about the whole time, but it was a, it was a slightly different perspective. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't quite tempt her into the thing, but what I observed, this thing that we did in the monastery was a kind of mini version of the things she must spend a lot of her life doing, which is lots of grand former European and American politicians and policymakers sort of bloviating about the future of the world and China. And I just thought she was actually quite tough and quite good at calling out bullshit. Mm. But I would have been interested actually to really get her, to be honest about it. And I felt the same with Theresa May. What it feels like is quite a serious woman sitting there endlessly in these rooms with people pontificating grandly about international affairs. Mm. Well, there is a whole kind of industry. There's a network. I mean, you mentioned the Munich Security Conference. I'm not saying they're not important, these events, but there is a kind of certain style of person that you see at all of these events that literally just thinks that the world is made of them having very, very high level conversations about issues that they're not fundamentally going to be in the position of addressing, where she has done both. She does the bloviating events, but she's also done the kind of on the ground and she's done the policy stuff. I did think there's something very interesting about growing up under the Franco dictatorship in the Basque country with a father who presumably was a a Spanish school teacher teaching in Basque schools. Mm. And I guess a bit like with Theresa May, she, she didn't seem that comfortable or confident getting on to her personal life. I guess she's not been a professional politician, so maybe she's not so used mm. to working out how to use stories from her own life. But I imagine there's something very interesting. We didn't hear much about her mother either. Mm. You know, what, 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 what is it that formed her? But I guess presumably a relatively modest background and then this kind of stellar. Yeah. Which she says is a sort of symbol of modern Spain. That's the way she feels about it. Yeah, and and also her, her, uh, I mean, yes, she has an accent, but her English is just phenomenal. And she speaks Basque, German, French. I think she speaks Italian as well. Italian as Uh, well, yeah. No, I I thought she was very impressive. And the thing she said about Spain having an inferiority complex, I mean, you know, if you think about it, okay, the UK is left. But there was, I remember when we were doing European summits, and there was the sense of there being a big three, which was essentially UK, France, Germany. And then Spain was sometimes just below and sometimes, you know, in the kind of second league, sometimes third league, and so much dependent upon who was in charge at the time. You've mentioned Gonzalez before. I think when Gonzalez was in charge, people felt Spain was punching above its weight. Maybe when Aznar was in charge as well. Whereas other times, Spain has just felt 
you know, just not been a top table player. But it was interesting for her to say that comes from an inferiority complex. And I, and I also loved the fact that she got her onto Latin America because I think, of course, Spanish politicians speak with such fluency and knowledge about Latin America in a way that British politicians don't talk about any region of the world. Mm. Anyway, Alistair, thank you. Thank you for coming along and thank you for doing this before you jump on your Eurostar. Absolutely. See you later. See you later. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.